Welcome to the next RevDem episode. My name is Kasia Krzyżanowska and I am the RevDem editor. And our guest today for the review of books podcast will be Dr. Karolina Wątroba, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in modern languages at All Souls College at University of Oxford. And today we will talk about her recently published book, Man's Magic Mountain, World Literature and Closer Reading. Welcome, Dr. Wontrova. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming to us. So let us start just our conversation about your book. And let us start with a very basic question. Because your book explores the diverse interpretations of um, and polemics with and simply literary experiences with the classic piece of literature, The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. But before we move to the content of your really great book, could you share with us your experience of reading Mann's masterpiece for the first time? Because some of your thoughts uh, you have already revealed in another essay for The Point magazine, which I really encourage our readers to, to read. But would you mind elaborating uh, on it for our audience? When was your first time when you read that? And what did this book mean to you at that time? How did you, re did you relate to other man's readers? And was it very important to you to discover what kind of experiences had other people? Um, yes, so I first read The Magic Mountain the summer before starting university. Um, and I think at the time I did it out of a vague feeling that I somehow ought to, uh, ought to read it if, if I'm about to um, begin a degree in German literature at Oxford. Um, and in my essay in the point that you kindly mentioned, um, I looked back at this first reading to contextualize it, not just as a sort of personal memory, a personal anecdote, but more a cultural experience that was conditioned or at least heavily influenced by the, the social cultural context in which I grew up. Um, so this was an interesting exercise to do this um, sort of years later, after years of careful study to go back to that first experience and try to and, and try to see it in a wider context. Um, and the way I well, and the way I do it in the essay is partly by comparing my own memories to other reports or descriptions of reading experiences by other readers of Thomas Mann, um, ranging from essays by Suzanne Zontag, Alice Munro, or Carlos Fuentes, to an online book club on Goodreads, to marginal notes in a copy owned by Thomas Mann's friend, or actually a frenemy, because his comments are quite mean. Um, so all these readers in various ways contend with the, with the immense erudition that the Magic Mountain is often seen to embody. So all those readers um, explicitly or implicitly um, ask themselves, you know, why, why do people write books like these? And even more importantly, why do we read them? Um, and how do we read them? And what do, what do we get out of them? What sort of cultural function do novels, those sort of magisterial, huge, erudite, um, sophisticated novels serve? Um, and I'm sure we will actually explore some of these questions in our conversation. Um, 
But one more thing I'd add here is that, interestingly, when I first read The Magic Mountain, I didn't actually have this instinct to discuss it with others straight away. Um, partly because I didn't know many people who had actually read it. Um, although I knew lots of people who had spoken about feeling like they should read it at some point. Um, but I think there's also a deeper reason. And I'm often struck by how extremely bookish people, um, including many literary scholars, find it actually very challenging to talk about books to other people who are not academics. Um, and, and the more I sort of thought about it at the beginning of this project that led to this book about Thomas Mann, I came to realize that there really is a gap between all those amazing complex ideas and research and scholarships discussed in academic publications and at specialist conferences and university seminars and so on. So between those, those kinds of contexts and the readers who are not part of academic institutions, but who still read these books too. And in fact, arguably as scholars, we devote so much energy to those books, not least because they matter to people who are not us. Um, so the, this, this led me to thinking about how we could close this gap. Um, and I thought this of step one should be to actually listen to what those non-academic readers, as I call them, um, have to say about the books that we study as academics, um, see what we can learn from them, and also how to draw connections or sometimes contrasts between these different kinds of readings. Um, so I guess that's, that, that's, that's how the project came about initially. Yeah, perfect. I think we will talk about these sources later on uh, in our conversation indeed. And now I wanted to dig deeper into what you already mentioned, so about the non-academic readership. Because your book, as I understand it, partly shares this conviction that uh, the academic literary criticism somehow precludes this uh, emotional, more emotional engagement with a literary masterpiece. Uh, this was evident when you quoted Elif Batman and, and her experience uh, approaching Russian authors, and we will talk about it later on as well. So could you explain what, what kind of insights are somehow missed if we do not appreciate as valid or if we do not deem as sophisticated enough and non-academic interpretations. So in other words, why should academics seriously engage with the Goodreads reviews, for example, or other accounts that are not professional, let's say? Why we should democratize academic literary studies and allow for an more emotional engagement with a book when interpreting it? Mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah, so I think the answer to this question in some ways is very easy and in other ways, extremely difficult. So I think the easy part to me is that it's just a fact that people have intense emotional responses to books. Sometimes there are positive, sometimes there are negative, you know, but even a feeling of boredom can be a very interesting emotional experience that can be studied in its own right. So that's, that's, that's a huge part of why people write books and why people read books, why we tell stories, why stories play such a huge part in um, many, if not all cultures around the world um, across time, right until the present day and probably into the future. So, you know, if, if this phenomenon is so important, then obviously 
we should study it, we should take it seriously, we should sort of work with it rather than trying to ignore it. So that's, to me, is the easy part. The, the real question, though, the really difficult question is different. And in fact, I would say it's two questions. Um, so one, um, some literary scholars would say, is it not less valuable or less interesting or less important, those emotional reactions, than other more intellectual types of engagement with books? Right. So they would say, oh, well, of course, people do have those emotional reactions, but maybe they are not as valuable. So we sh so we should, in fact, not engage with them because we should promote more, more important, more valuable ways of engaging with books. Um, so to this, I would say, first of all, that intellectual and emotional responses are not separate. And I think over the last few decades of research in various uh, branches, including not just literature, but, you know, cognitive studies, psychology, and so on. I think we have, we have sort of come to agree on, on this basic recognition that this distinction between emotional and intellectual is not really helpful. Um, but also, even if um, somebody is really wedded to this distinction, I would say that literary scholarship so far has been extremely unbalanced in privileging certain kinds of responses to literature over others to a degree that I think is so extreme that it definitely creates scope for at least some research on those more emotional parts of our responses to books. But then there's still the second question that is the difficult um, aspect of this of this issue, and that's how to do it, how to do it well. How can we study those emotional experiences that people have with books? And here some academics, some scholars would say that this can only be meaningfully done through things like scientific experiments. So for example, when you have readers in labs, um, in laboratories, and you, know, you can track their eye movements as they move across the, a page, or um, you can put them in an fMRI scanner, and you know, people have done this. Um, or a, sort of a slightly different approach, but still um, very wedded to scientific disciplines in social and natural sciences, would be to use sociological tools like surveys. So you define a big group of readers and you sort of make them read the same thing and you ask them specific questions about what they've read. And um, then you can sort of try to map their responses to um, various variables like age or gender um, or uh, levels of education and so on. Um, so I, I think there is definitely a place for this kind of study um, and people are doing it with, with various books and in various ways and it's a rapidly developing field. Um, but I don't think it's the only way um, and it's and, it, and it's, not the, it's not the approach that I have chosen. So I'm more interested in comparing readers across various historical contexts um, and also in seeing how individuals make sense of books or negotiate their aesthetic attachments to books in real life. Um, and I think overall, I'm less interested in say a systematic overview of how a specific group of people reads a specific book. But I'm more interested in identifying sort of compelling case studies which can shed new light on books that, you know, as scholars, we think we're super familiar, maybe over familiar with. Um, so I'm interested in those moments of connections with some readers very different from me, very far away from me in time or in space, um, who make me see the book 
in this case, the Magic Mountain differently. And through this, unlock new perspectives for me on broader topics, um, sort of broader cultural issues and dilemmas. And this is not to say that you know other approaches are not legitimate, are not valid, are not interesting. It's it, it's just about sort of what kind of knowledge I gravitate towards, also in other people's research, not 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 just for my own purposes, um, and also the kind of knowledge that I think I'm good at producing. Um, and it's it's a kind of knowledge that I think in the humanities we're well positioned to offer. And it's a kind of knowledge that perhaps other disciplines are not as well geared to capture. So that to me is the particular value of this approach that I have chosen. Yeah, of course. Now it came to my mind another question. So um, how much of a revolution was your book at Oxford? I mean, how much does it diverge from what is taught and how is thought, uh, taught uh, literature at this university or, or at universities at all? I mean, um, do you see yourself somehow breaking of a tradition of writing about literature? Um, well, I think the word revolution is too strong, probably. Um, but um, definitely I had a sense of doing something different, of doing things differently to what I've been taught, sort of building on the approaches that, that I have been taught as a student and sort of building all on the knowledge and the frameworks that were being offered to me by my supervisor and my examiners and you know other other colleagues at Oxford um, but I was very tempted to sort of do something that people haven't done before and especially things that you know raised eyebrows at first it can sometimes be a hard sell in a place like Oxford to you know explain to people why looking at Goodreads or Amazon reviews or you know, reviews on people's personal blogs online is is valid and can sort of yield some interesting, valuable insights. Um, but as I said, I I still came to this project very much grounded in literary methods that you know some would consider old-fashioned, um, and and I and I didn't just discard them and started doing my own thing completely anew. But I tried to actually integrate those different approaches, and I kept. You know, thinking about the the people who would be reading my book, and I try to make it speak, you know, both to people who already think that it's interesting to look at Goodreads, and to people who maybe don't even know what Goodreads is because their own experience of the literary universe is so different that they are not even aware of those developments online or they have never considered them important before. So I try to write in a way by forging a bridge between people who might not share methodological convictions at all, but are all interested in the same object. So the magic mountain is really the glue, I think, that holds it all together. Um, and so far, I've really had very positive experiences with uh, sort of people responding to the book. Um, I, I think I managed to make it attractive to both people who are very much steeped in the study of those canonical modernist classics and especially Thomas Mann, um, because they, 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 they really appreciated how this approach really is new and how it doesn't leave the book behind, the book itself behind, which I think was a worry for some. Um, but also I, I think I managed to make the book attractive to people who are interested in those of new developments on the literary scene, um, you know, readers on the internet, those unconventional sources, but maybe who 
would not think to apply those methods to a sort of very well established literary classic like the magic mountain yeah um so yeah. i think uh, readers like this can also um sort of learn something new uh from my book um and um well we'll see we'll see um how the book is received now that it's that it's been published but um so far, I think for me, it's been a really good way to marry my different interests within literary studies and some approaches that are considered very conventional and old fashioned with some much more innovative, playful, often quite creative um, new trends. Um, yeah. And this mix to me was really what attracted me to this topic. I was not, I am not from the field, but I was really convinced but by your narrative. So uh, we will see, really. Uh, I am also. That, that, that's actually really good to hear because, you know, I talked about those different readers that I imagined for my book. And another group of readers was also people from outside the field. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess having read the book, you can probably see how this really is connected to my argument throughout the book which is that it is very unhelpful and unproductive to have those divisions between academic readers and non-academic readers Absolutely. so I hope that in sort of the way I wrote the book I also managed to to sort of bridge that disconnect to some extent. In this context let us talk about literary criticism because mm -hmm. this is another broad area of topic of, of discussion nowadays so what would you expect from, from literary criticism? Would you still draw a strict line between academic reviews and popular ones? I guess not, uh, based on what you've said uh, recently. What kind of features uh, would you like to have in a perfect book review? I ask about that because uh, in a book published by Philippa Trunk two years ago, she has shown that a lot of contemporary critics do not have a fixed position in magazines or newspapers, the market of reviews is now becoming more democratic. Um, so do you think that serious treatment of non-academic readers might actually revive the literary criticism or open some new avenues for this? Right, so I, I have a few things to say in response to this. Um, so first of all, um, it, it's useful to, to sort of distinguish between literary criticism and literary scholarship because historically and institutionally these have often been seen as two separate fields for for better or worse um where literary scholarship is an academic discipline that sort of studies literature from various angles is the kind of writing that literary scholars produce is not necessarily aimed at um, sort of the general public book readers at all um, and, you know, within this discipline, you have lots of different approaches um, from material book history to how books reflect and co-create social realities and systematically describing aesthetic conventions and their developments and so on. So that's literary scholarship sort of traditionally um, understood, whereas literary criticism um, is much more associated with sort of the literary market as it is at the given time. So it's about writing reviews and judging literary prizes. Um, it it's, tends to be more public facing. Um, and, and, and those are important differences. Um, but still, I don't think it's, it's that useful to see them as the two entirely separate pursuits. Um, and there's always at least some overlap. You know, you will have academics reviewing books for literary magazines, for example. Um, and I think in an ideal world, 
I'd like to see sort of as much productive cost fertilization between these 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 two domains as possible, um, and that's also what I've what I've tried to achieve in writing the book and now in promoting it. So, for example, taking literary criticism seriously and sort of studying it as one type of um, source, um, as the type of material that I look at in my book. Um, but also, you know, writing an essay for the point um, to try and um, position the ideas from my book to a slightly different audience. Um, but you also touch on an aspect that I perhaps should have or could have highlighted more in the book, which is the sort of the precise boundary between academic and non-academic or professional and non-professional readers. Um, and I do say at some point in the book that this distinction is really meant more as a sort of provocation, because in fact, the boundaries between academic and non-academic readers are often very blurry. Um, but what is a crucial part of this distinction is the institutional environment that surrounds it. Um, and in part particular, with sort of precarious employment conditions, many early career literary scholars who start out aiming to become essentially professors or even if it's not their sort of explicit aim, they are trained in PhD programs as though they were going to end up becoming professors. They gradually decide or are forced to either leave academia altogether or partially. Um, and some of, to me, the most exciting thinkers on literature at the moment, like Elif Batuman, who I write about a lot in the book and who you've already mentioned, that they occupy precisely this space. Um, so connected to, academ to academia with its Sort of peculiar institutionalized reading practices in some ways, but sort of disconnected or even excluded from it in others. Um, and now, what does this mean? Does this mean democratization? Well, in some ways, yes, because it means that more people are involved in this business of talking about books um, in various roles with different career paths. There's more variety, diversity of perspectives. But equally, we could and maybe should focus more on the much less positive sides of this phenomenon. For example, the fact that universities often rely on the work of such para-academics, as some have called them, without proper acknowledgement or remuneration. And usually those who exist in this space and suffer the most from those conditions come from the so-called non-traditional um, academic backgrounds, right? So this doesn't sound so democratic at all, if you put it that way. Um, so I think to sum up, I would say, you know, drawing strict lines between various types of writing about books, sometimes I think is not productive if we use it to just exclude certain voices. And if we assume from the outset that they are less sophisticated, less interesting, less valuable. In other ways, I think it is sort of politically important to actually keep highlighting those very real lines that make it impossible for some people to, um, to actually exist in the academic space full time, even though they would like to and are well qualified to do so and so on. Um, so I think it's, it's quite a complex issue, which um, I don't it, it's it's not the primary topic of my book, but I think it's definitely an important part of the context. So thank you for <laughs> giving me an opportunity to explain it a little more. Yeah, thanks for saying that. Um, 
actually reading is entangled within social position or is connected with social position. So we will come back to that uh, perhaps uh, in a later part. And now I wanted to ask you about this closer reading. So what does it actually mean to do practice closer reading in the context of the man's masterpiece? Uh, what this process consists of actually because as you mentioned already next to some uh, sources that directly refer to the magic mountain you engage with such artifacts as commercials memoirs any movies also letters from the front line so how did the selection process of your sources look like because it seems that it's a melange of different ideas mm -hmm. yes yeah, so first um, this practice of closer reading. Um, so you, you, I, I can't explain it without starting with the much more familiar term, which is close reading. Uh, and that's a key skill um, in, in the toolkit of literary scholars. Um, and it describes the analyzing how meaning unfolds in literary texts on the level of a sentence or even individual word choices. So paying attention to um, style, rhetoric, sort of detail, grounding your interpretation of a text in textual detail. Um, and this is really something that with my teaching hat on, I, I, I you know, spend a lot of time uh, developing with students. Um, but sometimes this, this technique has been critiqued as old fashioned and lacking. Um, and one prominent alternative championed in recent years has been so -called, the so-called distant reading. So rather than focusing on those sort of tiny textual details and, and, and starting from that, working with huge corpora, uh, assessing large scale trends, um, literary trends through data mining and so on. Um, now, both can be done well or badly, um, but my point in the book is that these are not the only two options and the distant reading is not the only possible solution um, to address the shortcomings or dissatisfaction with close reading. And one such dissatisfaction in particular is that it can lead us to focus so closely on the text that we forget or ignore how texts are part of the world. Um, so how, how they work in the world, what readers do with them, what they do to their readers. Um, so the danger for close reading, I guess, is that um, in staying so close to the text, as we often tell our students to do, you know, stay close to the text, um, we, we might end up ignoring factors like the emotional closeness that readers might feel in relation to a text, which will inevitably hugely impact how they read it. Um, so I'm operating here with metaphors of proximity and distance, because we are often told to value objectivity, to you know, be a distanced observer, that that's the, the role of a scholar. Um, but I think what is really needed in literary scholarship is something more nuanced, a more nuanced attitude. And, and those are the kinds of reflections I wanted to encourage and make possible through this phrase, closer reading, which I think naturally arouses interest, especially among people who have been trained in the tradition of close reading. Um, and one way to describe this method is to say that what I want to do is to close read not just texts, but also to close read what readers do with texts. And I try to be as creative as possible when selecting my sources to perform this act of closer reading, uh, because usually when literary scholars are interested in 
sort of learning about how readers have responded to text, they draw on quite a narrow selection of sort of well-established sources. Uh, reviews are the most basic tool in this context. Maybe letters, if we have any written by readers, often to the authors themselves. Maybe essays, memoirs, sometimes marginal notes. Um, and I also used all of those types of sources. Um, but um, I also try to sort of think outside of the box to think about what other what what other sort of um, cultural artifacts, as you put it, are out there that can sort of um, give us an insight into how people have responded to the Magic Mountain. So defining it in those broad terms allowed me to, as you've mentioned, look at things like an anime movie by Hayao Miyazaki, the great master um, of anime, who um, casts Hans Castor, the protagonist of the Magic Mountain, as a very important character in his own recent movie. Um, and that film was uh, extremely successful in Japan uh, and, in fact, was entangled in all sorts of political discussions um, in which sort of unexpectedly Hans Castor from the Magic Mountain starts to play a prominent role through how he is used in the film. So I, 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 I wanted to find traces like this that are clearly traces of a reading of the Magic Mountain and through sort of careful contextualization and sort of cross comparison with other types of sources, I tried to reconstruct what we can learn from examples like this, what we can learn both about um, the Magic Mountain itself and also the uses to which people have put the Magic Mountain over the years. Um, and the, the central argument in the book is that you can't really neatly separate the two. So you can't really separate what the Magic Mountain means from what people, what readers have done with the Magic Mountain. One of the sources that you have chosen is particularly striking. Because when discussing the economic dimension of the Magic Mountain, you put, the, put light on the links that the organizers of the World Economic Forum are trying to establish between their event and the book. So why this literary connection is important for the organizers of the Economic Forum, according to you? Uh, and a broader question linked to that, what kind of legitimacy do the books or the authors of the books give to these huge events like this? Do you think it's it, is it out of pure snobbery that they would like to establish this kind of things or is it something deeper? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so uh, it is one of my favorite examples in the book as well. Um, and um, the, the link is there, whether we'd like it or not. Um, the uh, World Economic Forum was founded by Klaus Schwab, a German economist, who, um, who says that one of the reasons why he chose Davos as, as the setting for the forum is the fact that this is where the Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann was set. Well, it also helped that Davos opened a huge conference centrum just about the time um, when he was looking for the, a suitable location. But to this day, in the promotional materials of the forum, this connection to the Magic Mountain is repeatedly made. Um, and sort of parallels are drawn between um, this uh, European elite in Thomas Mann's novel, um, comfortably lifted above everyday concerns as they sustain the sanatorium for many months and years um, and discuss about 
the political and social situation um, around the world, but in those very abstract terms um, for most of the duration of the novel, at least. Um, sort of reality doesn't, um, doesn't um, sort of reach them um, in the sanatorium, or at least that's what they would like to think. Um, so of course, in the in Thomas Mann's novel, this is this is all, all very sort of complex, beautifully done. Um, this sort of multi-layered um, nature of reality and how the patients at uh, the Davos Sanatorium experience it. Um, whereas um, with the World Economic Forum, we again have the wealthy, the world elites of one sort of another who gather in this place regularly. Um, and you could say also discuss real world concerns um, in, um, in abstract terms um, to a point where this becomes really problematic and has of course been the, um, the, the, the motivation for many critiques of, of the World Economic Forum over the years. Now, um, what I found fascinating is that to my knowledge, no literary scholars of the Magic Mountain have ever commented on this, at least publicly, <laughs> in any publications or, um, you know, in their books, articles, and so on. And, and in fact, I don't think I have ever come across anybody who actually had known about this connection at all. Um, so if nothing else, I think this sheer contrast between how this world event, which clearly is the most famous association of Davos today, you know, the fact that this, this connection between the Magic Mountain and this huge event in Davos today has been completely overlooked. I think this is so stark and maybe symbolic of, again, this gap between literary scholarship um, and the world outside of academia. The justice of sheer striking nature of this um, has has compelled me to 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 have a short section about um, the World Economic Forum, um, and then the second step was to try and shift the discourse from just you know responding to this link by just sort of laughing it off and saying, oh, of course, the World Economic Forum, I mean, what else will they come up with? This is outrageous. And it's clearly a misreading of the Magic Mountain and it's just laughable. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I understand why people would have this reaction, but I think it's more productive rather than trying to decide, is this legitimate at all? How do we judge this? It, you know, isn't it ridiculous? I, I think it's more productive, it's more interesting to actually look at the kinds of at the kind of language and metaphors that is used in those promotional materials and compare it actually to other types of discourse that surrounds the Magic Mountain, be it academic interpretations or impressions of other readers, and to actually try and and see it not as some sort of aberration, this this whole World Economic Forum adopted genealogy in the Magic Mountain, but more as part of a pattern where different readers try to claim the Magic Mountain as a certain symbol, as the symbol of, of erudition, as the symbol of superiority often, as a symbol of intellectualism, and they try to weaponize it and use it to their own ends. Um, often in very sort of crude, economically motivated terms, and I have other examples in the book. Um, in this vein, or sometimes in more 
sort of figurative terms um, as, as, as more of an intellectual uh, weapon. And I think once we, once we start seeing those connections, then what the World Economic Forum organizers do stops coming across as some sort of strange exception, but in fact can be shown to be actually very typical of a certain type of response to the Magic Mountain, which we can trace across time. Readers reacting very strongly to those intimations of erudition and trying to portray themselves as participating in it, worthy of it, sharing it, or in, or in contrast, sort of feeling a lot of shame and feeling inferior and thematizing this feeling of inferiority. Uh, I will come back to this uh, question of, of erudition just right in a moment, but there was another question. How about these uh, establishing connections between uh, huge books, very important masterpieces, literary masterpieces and other social events? I mean, why do you think it's so important for the social event to be legitimized somehow by um, famous author who is known for its his her erudition? Yeah, well, I, I, it, part of it is just, you know, that's how cultural capital works, um, that um, often to appear more respectable, more intellectually respectable, um, especially if your endeavor, like the World Economic Forum, is subject to so much critique, relentless critique, you try to adopt some lineage that is supposed to show how in fact the roots of what you're doing are much more respectable and you're an heir to this prior tradition that people value. Um, however, I also think with this case in particular, um, and, and this is also part of how I frame it in the book, is that many readers of The Magic Mountain have this desire to immersively reenact the novel in their own life. So Davos, quite irrespectively of the World Economic Forum, every year receives, as they were once called in a in a journal, um, in a newspaper article, Magic Mountain pilgrims who go into all of the different places that are mentioned in the book. Even though Davos today would be completely unrecognizable to Thomas Mann or his or his characters, um, but there is something about the sort of the world building in this book. Um, that creates this really evocative space and this lifestyle and this way of experiencing time um, that really invites this desire for immersive reenactment. And this comes up again and again. Um, and this clearly sort of a feature of the design of the novel, which starts with the protagonist entering in this you know, in this long chapter, very evocative chapter, entering this enchanted world. Um, and as readers, we sort of reenact this act through the pure act of reading the book because we enter this fictional world as the main character enters um, his world. Um, and then the next step is to try to experience it in some other way. Um, and I, I show many examples of this. Authors, sometimes authors ideologically very opposed to Thomas Mann, like Konstantin Fiedin, one of the founding fathers of um, uh, social realism in Soviet Russia. He writes his sort of communist version of the Magic Mountain, which however is still set in a, in, in a sanatorium in Davos. Um, so the World Economic Forum, again, here isn't some sort of strange exception. Um, 
but it's very much part of a pattern in how readers, very different kind of readers. I mean, you know, Konstantin Tiedin does not have much in common with the organizers of the World Economic Forum, and yet they had the same impulse, I think, and they followed it in their different ways. Yeah, let us come back to this erudition problem that you mentioned already, because uh, you wrote in your book that uh, Magic Mountain forces the reader to confront her anxieties about not being a good enough reader. So was really man so competent and erudite? Or rather, he was just skillful at making such an impression on, on the readers. Yeah, so this is an important uh, part of my book. Um, so I um, I think I have, I have two answers to this. So one, Thomas Mann was both erudite and not erudite because how we sort of imagine, how we construct erudition as, as, a, as a cultural um, trope is very different to what it actually looks like in real life. And I think Thomas Mann was very aware of that contrast and spent a lot of intellectual energy in writing the book um, to somehow balance this cultural image of erudition and what it actually looks like if you try to do it in real life. So the book reads as a work of an incredible polymath who knows everything about everything and can just give you sort of very factually precise anecdotes about every aspect of history, science, philosophy, politics, across ages, across Europe and beyond. Um, and the characters in the book, especially Setembrini and Nafta, those, those two um, especially sort of philosophically inclined patients, they are able to speak in those page-long monologues where they just invoke all of those examples and draw those connections and disagree with each other and come up with better examples that are supposed to refute the example given by the interlocutor and so on. Whereas the actual process of composition of those passages, as we now know, thanks to a great deal of genetic criticism, which looks at how Thomas Mann composed those passages, what he based them on. And also, um, you know, for example, explanations he has given in letters to other people about his composition process. We have a lot of evidence to sort of reconstruct what this process was actually like. And it required a lot of extra reading, often in very popular books. So not extremely specialist academic books, but actually sort of popular books on various topics in culture and science. And Thomas Mann would pull together all those different sources, um, often would paraphrase whole passages from such books, sometimes so closely that it, today it could be accused of plagiarism. Um, and then, as he claimed in his letters, he would promptly forget all of his sources. And if you asked him about this or that a few years later, which readers sometimes did in letters, he just wouldn't remember. Um, so, you know, does this mean that he was not erudite? No, I think the book speaks for itself, right? It's, <laughs> it's a very suggestive vision and he manages to extremely skillfully sort of meld all of those different sources that he has come across um, during work on the book. He melds them together in such sometimes surprising ways or sort of 
just fine tunes the tone of a passage that he sort of half plagiarizes from another book in such suggestive ways with his stylistic flourishes that it is an incredible achievement. However, it is not quite the achievement that the reader um, sort of imagines as they read it. The book is made to look like this sort of perfect, untouchable um, creation that doesn't have any cracks and is just perfect and ideal and learned. Um, another great example for this mechanism is the use of French in the book. So famously, there are several passages, especially one quite lengthy passage, which is written almost entirely in French. Um, it's, it's a key scene in the novel, so um, it really would be good to be able to understand it. Um, and, and, you know, when people sort of discuss this example, they will often say, well, Thomas Mann's readers at the time would have been educated differently to how we're educated now, so they would have easily read it. But in fact, Thomas Mann was not extremely fluent in French. Um, he did draft those passages himself, but then he ran it by a friend who was much better at French. And then another reader in his time who was much um, more familiar with French in fact, kept going through his own copy and writing snide comments in the margins about all of the sort of little mistakes that Thomas Mann made in the French. So that is a very, very different image to how, again, to the, the image of the implied author that the reader constructs in her mind as she reads. So, so that's why ultimately my, um, my answer to the question, was Thomas Mann really erudite or not, is both yes and no. Um, and then the really interesting thing is sort of how readers respond to it. And I show a whole array of possible responses from readers who are clearly very self-assured um, and find a unique pleasure in pointing out those little mistakes that Thomas Mann made in the French to readers who are very insecure. Um, and one particular pattern that I um, sort of uncover is young women reading The Magic Mountain. Um, often women who go on to become incredibly famous, accomplished, influential thinkers and writers like Suzanne Zontag and Alice Munro, who I have already mentioned, but also um, uh, others. Um, and they often, um, th this, th the experience of reading The Magic Mountain as a young woman becomes this formative experience of both intimidation, but also aspiration and ambition. So it becomes this sort of tool of self-formation and intellectual development. Um, and The Magic Mountain is often discussed as a Bildungsroman, so this novel of education, uh, although it's, you know, it's education and formation of the self precisely. Um, but in fact, this is not just something that happens in the novel or that is a theme in the novel. This is also, as, as I show in the book, a recurrent theme in responses to the novel, in how readers approach it themselves. It's super interesting that you discovered this pattern about young women reading Thomas Mann, because this is something that perhaps was not so well known or not known at all. Uh, and coming back to this uh, image of Thomas Mann as erudite or him being an erudite, I think something similar was pointed out by Colm Toybin in his auto uh, fictional autobiography of Thomas Mann, when he presented Thomas Mann as a person who is not so knowledgeable uh, in politics. He just pretends to understand politics or writes about politics as if he 
understood where from where the wind comes. But uh, in fact, he was just uh, criticizing uh, his brother and uh, not really engaging with uh, really political life, true political life. Um, but it's disputable, I guess. Um, mm. Yeah, I think it's... It, it's... Um, I hope what we're seeing as we approach the centenary of the publication of the Magic Mountain, so it's just a good moment to take stock and think about think about Thomas Mann. I hope it's part of this wave of new readings of Thomas Mann and sort of placing emphasis differently. Um, and maybe, you know, biographers and scholars and critics and readers becoming a little bit more irreverent when approaching Thomas Mann, because for a very long time, um, he has been really sanctified as this sort of canonical giant. Um, and I think um, to keep him interesting to readers, to, to, to sort of keep him in circulation as an important author, we need, we need to balance this out with other new approaches. Um, and there, there have certainly been many uh, interesting approaches to him like this, uh, including a very interesting recent book about Thomas Mann's time in exile in the US. And a lot of it is precisely about his, his role as a sort of political, um, well, maybe not quite an activist and not quite a thinker, but certainly a prominent public persona during the Second World War. Um, but in fact, if you look at, this, at the actual content of his political statements, many of them come across as incredibly banal. Um, many of them not really correct or not particularly convincing. However, this book, uh, which is called Thomas Mann's War, it's by Tobias Boas. Um, the book is excellent at bringing out Thomas Mann's skill as a sort of savvy promoter of himself and, and the sort of almost marketer participating in those sort of new processes of mass circulation and just crisscrossing the US, including sort of provincial towns to give lectures and... Um, um, and sort of sell more of his books and working with his publishers and um, with sort of various players on the literary scene to sort of become part of public life, to become really a global celebrity, um, some scholars have called him. Um, so I think this is all part of this broader wave of trying to reframe Thomas Mann uh, and sort of change his reputation somewhat. My last question would regard a broader problem. Um, so the phenomenon of the literature in which the, the literature of autofiction actually, uh, where the authors describe their lives, their experiences, relying on the references to other books. You mentioned uh, somehow the strategy of uh, when describing the case of the main protagonist of Norwegian Woods by Haruki Murakami, mm -hmm. when Toru tries to make sense of his friend's death by reading Man's book. But there is much more. And let us take, for example, just uh, Deborah Levy or Jenny Erpenbeck or Anna Burns. You mentioned also Elif Batuman and her experience with reading these Russian authors. And uh, there is obviously a lot of more recent works like Claire Louise Bennett and her Checkout 19, where she describes how she uh, read or not read uh, some books and what impressions did it make on her. So perhaps this phenomenon of autofiction could be boiled down to a broader question that you pose in your book. So what do we need culture for? 
and would you dare to answer it? In <laughs> that, that, that's a good way of posing this question, will I dare? Um, so th this is both a question that really drives a lot of my research and a lot of my um, research interests, but also a question that is that I think sort of it doesn't serve this question well to answer it directly because I find it extremely difficult to answer this question sort of directly in a way that will actually convey how momentous my answer to it is because it always sounds too generic or vague, you know. Um, and unfortunately, often as scholars in the humanities, we are forced to sort of defend the existence of our discipline by answering questions like this in, you know, uh, funding applications or in various public fora. And, it's, and I find that we often fall short because what can we say? We can say um, culture is a tool for thinking. Culture is how we make sense of our lives. Uh, we all need culture to survive to find meaning in life none of this sounds you know particularly convincing because it's sort of vague general um it's sort of difficult to actually defend in detail um so i think my book was an attempt to answer this question but rather than falling back on those generic statements presenting the reader with a sort of series of connected case studies that show various answers to this question, um, I hope in compelling ways, um, ranging from um, the testimony of German prisoners of war in the US who used the Magic Mountain to make sense of their experience of the war and their experience of the internment camps. Um, and sort of other sort of moving personal intense stories like this. But at the same time, I, 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 I never want to sort of slip into this very melodramatic mode um, where, you know, this is what culture is for. Um, this sort of heroic narrative about how good culture is for us. I also try to always be very attentive to how we can use culture to our own ends. And that's maybe not always so good and so sort of morally laudable. So with those prisoners of war, I try to contextualize their, um, in, in this case, this open letter that one of those prisoners of war wrote to Thomas Mann. Um, I try to contextualize by showing how this is not just a beautiful moving testimony of how this particular reader and perhaps a whole generation of readers engaged with Thomas Mann's book, but there's also so much self-interest at stake. <laughs> These prisoners of war are trying to appeal to the American armed forces, which will soon determine their futures in post-war Germany. So it's so all of my case studies are very much of their time and contextualized with reference to the sort of geographical, historical, social, cultural context. Um, and I try not to idealize this, this saving grace of culture. I try to be more realistic and hopefully through that more convincing. And I hope to try to show both the promise that culture holds for us, but also the sort of the dangers or the darker sides or the more sort of morally gray zones in how people use culture and how they um, how, how they put it to use. Yeah. Great. So here we will stop. So thank you very much once again, Dr. Karolina Vantrova was with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And up until the next time. <laughs>